Well, I want to ask you a question. What if I came this morning and I told you that Jesus was not born of a virgin? Or what if I told you that Jesus was fully God, but he was not fully man? Or what if I said he was fully man, but he was not fully God? Or that Jesus was a created being, he was not pre-existent. My question to you is, these are teachings, these are heresies that have made their way into the church and into different religions. There's people that would teach this. My question to you is, do you know how to defend what you believe about these things? Do you know what scripture teaches about these things? And would you be able to articulate and defend why you believe differently than these You see, Theology 101, I'm excited about this series as we look at a few of the distinct systematic theological doctrines that we have. What this does is it helps us to have lenses to read the Bible and to see clearly uh, what Scripture is teaching us. You know, we got Micah a telescope for Christmas, like a $70 Amazon telescope. I've never spent much time looking through telescopes, but we went out one night to the lake, seen the moon a thousand times. But even in his like $70 telescope, I start looking and I'm like, man, it's amazing the amount of stars that you can see. It's amazing to see a little bit more of the detail of the moon. And there was a part of me that like it stirred up some awe in me to, to see it just a little clearer. But we also have a, a man in our church that's a member uh, named Pete, and he is into astronomy like crazy. He's got his own place in the back, his backyard with extremely powerful, extremely expensive telescopes. I mean, one of them's like this big around, as tall as I am. He's got another one that's digital that takes pictures, and he invites our family over the other night. He says, man, I want, I want you to look just through these telescopes at the moon. And so we come, and I've got a picture, and of course this screen in the cafeteria does no justice, but this is the picture of what I was looking at with my naked eye through his telescope. Like I've never, I mean, I've seen pictures, I've seen videos, and you're seeing a picture going, yeah, we've seen the moon. But when you look at it with clarity through a telescope, and it's this big, and you begin to see the, cra- the, the craters in the moon, I, I was pretty awestruck. I mean, it was such clarity and depth and closeness just looking into this telescope, and I was like, holy cow, like, I see the moon in a different way. And in fact, like, this one specific crater with all the lines coming out of it, like, you can see that at night with your naked eye, and I've never even noticed it before. And for me now, when I, when I see the moon, again, just walking at nighttime, which I'd seen a thousand times before, didn't think much about in most of my days, I, I kind of try to find that one crater with the lines coming out, and I'm going, man, when you zoom in, And you begin to really focus on something with clarity. You see things differently. Like I looked at the moon with a different purpose and a different awe and a different wonder. And this is what theology is for us. Listen, some of you guys go, you are more geeked out about Theology 101 as one of our uh, uh, sermon series than anything else we've ever done. Some of you are like, I don't even like that word because it just seems boring, right? But here's the reality, guys. What we believe about God and what we believe about Christ and what we believe about what Scripture says is massively important to how we worship and serve our Creator. My prayer for us is that whether you've been someone that's like, hey, I've seen the moon before, or maybe you do have like the little blue $70 type view of Jesus and the Scripture's like, I've spent some time, like I've looked into it some, or maybe you're like, dude, I've got the honking thing and I've been studying like crazy. Regardless of where you are, what I hope these next few weeks do for us is give us 40 minutes to zoom in to who Jesus is, what he's done, what Scripture teaches us about God and salvation 
and in the end times as well. And that we will gain awe and wonder and worship and obedience in a different way. That you'll leave here and you'll look at Jesus differently than you did when we came in. I love last week, Austin did a phenomenal job. If you were here last week, I'm surprised he did not get eaten by she-bears, but he's still alive. So that's good. That's just an inside joke. If you were here last week, he made fun of me. But anyway, regardless, Austin kicked us off with bibliology. And, and we did that on purpose. That was him coming and telling us that the scriptures were inspired, infallible, and errant, that God had given us his divine revelation. Look, anything you know about God, any experience you've had with God, anything you've studied about God, anything you'd say about God, if it doesn't line up with his direct revelation in scripture that he's given us about himself, it's not true. But we can come and we can trust that scripture has been given us to us by the creator of the universe and it's trustworthy, and it's true, and, and, and Austin did an incredible job to set our foundation. But today we're going to look at Christology, and here's the definition of Christology. It's the study of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and you've heard a lot about the person of Jesus Christ. You've heard a lot about the work of Jesus Christ, but what I hope is we take the big honking telescope, and we really zoom in. We begin to go, man, how huge is our God and our King? How big is the salvation that Jesus did what he did as we look at the person and the work of Jesus? And so with that being said, as we, my prayer for us is as we look at the second part of the Trinity, the Son of God, who humbly wrapped himself in human form, and instead of exalting himself as king, he lowered himself in the form of a servant to death for his creation, that we might be redeemed, that that would continue to transform us and be new and fresh to us this morning. And so as we look at Christology, Danny Aiken wrote a, uh, a systematic theology book called Theology for the Church, and he kind of breaks Christology into three things. He would say uh, you can do a Christology from above, and that would be, let's look at all the scriptures that talk about Jesus up in heaven. He would say you could do a Christology from below, and that would be let's, let's study Christ and his work as a person on the earth. And then he has Christology from behind. And I love that Austin started last week teaching us that scripture is one meta-narrative, one story that from the very beginning is showing that God created, that there was a fall, that he came to redeem, and he's coming to restore. Look, every part of scripture, the Old Testament, matters to us because it points us to Jesus. It points us to what he was going to accomplish. It points us to the, the heart of the Lord for you and I. And so I want to begin actually with a Christology from behind. I want you to look for a moment at a few of the things in the Old Testament that tell us who was Christ going to be and what was he going to accomplish. And it begins in the garden. Genesis chapter 3. You guys know this story. God creates Adam and Eve. He gives them ruling and dominion over all the garden. He says, look, you can have everything. It's all yours. They're walking in perfect relationship with the Father day and night and early in the morning. He goes, just don't eat of this tree of knowledge because it will kill you. And the serpent comes in and he deceives Eve and she eats of the fruit. And then Adam eats of the fruit. And for the first time in human history, sin came in and fractured everything. And it divided the relationship between Adam and the Lord. Like they'd been walking together, communing in the garden. And all of a sudden they realized, man, we're naked. They put together some fig leaves to try to cover themselves, which was not adequate. And they hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. Do you know what they did? For the first time ever, they hid from God. 
They didn't want to run to God. They wanted to run away from God. Sin had broken that relationship, and God comes, and he calls them out. And he says that the Bible says that he clothed them with skin. I, I think we could deduct from that that this was probably the first sacrifice because of sin. And blood was spilled so that it would cover their naked bodies to atone for what had happened. And then Jesus, or, or the Lord begins to lay out his curse on man, his curse on woman, and his curse on the serpent. And there's this moment in Genesis 3.15, and, and actually uh, Austin alluded to this too. It's called the Proto-Evangelion. This is the first gospel proclamation. Here's what I love, man. The moment sin entered the world, God steps in and he proclaims that there's still hope. That there's still a way to be made right. That there's still a way to do away with sin. That there's still a way to restore what was broken. And in Genesis 3.15, we hear this proclamation. It says this. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Talking to the serpent, he's going, man, there is going to be a seed of the woman that will come. And though you may bruise his heel, serpent, he is going to crush your head. There will be this man that is born down the road and he is going to take back what was taken away in the garden. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to defeat sin and death and evil. And he's going to restore what was broken in the garden. Literally from the beginning of scripture, the gospel proclamation of God's love and restorative power for you and I goes out. Begins to paint this picture that the Messiah, Jesus, is coming. And then you have Abraham. God sets up some covenants with different people along the way. And you have the Abrahamic covenant. And this is where God comes to Abram, who is old and his wife has not had any kids. They're barren. And he's going, from you, I'm going to give you a promised child. And it's going to change the world. And we can look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3, where this promise happens. Listen. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, the nation of Israel. And I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse you. And then listen to this. He tells Abraham, and you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. There was this promise of a child that would come. And through that lineage, Jesus would arrive and bless the earth. But if you remember the story of Abraham, the angel of the Lord that we know probably is Jesus, the son, shows up and says, Abraham, I want you to take Isaac, the promised child, up onto the mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to prove that you have faith in me, that you're obedient to me, and I want you to slay this child that you've been waiting for that I promised you. Man, and Abraham and Isaac hike up the mountain. And the Bible says that Abraham, as he lays Isaac on the table, he goes, man, I know that even if the Lord does require my son of me, he's able to raise him from the dead. And he pulls up his knife and he begins to slay his own child. And the angel of the Lord says, hey, stop. I see now that you're obedient. I see now that you have faith. I see now that you trust me. Go look, there's a ram who's caught in the thicket. He will be an acceptable replacement for this sacrifice. And, and they go and they sacrifice the ram. And then the angel of the Lord speaks one time. And listen to this one more time. And in Genesis 22, 15 through 18, here's what he says. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, 
By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Does that sound like familiar language? You've literally got the son speaking as the angel of the Lord to Abraham. He's going, because you have not withheld your son, your only son. I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. Because I'm going to deliver up my son, my only son. And there's not going to be a ram that's going to take the place. He's going to be the perfect spotless lamb that will joyfully and willingly go and lay himself down so that the nations may be blessed. There's going to be a greater Abraham. And then you have Moses, this prophet, this deliverer, this one that leads the people out of slavery. He goes on the mountaintop. He's given the Ten Commandments that really fell short of redeeming anything. It just showed us our greater need for a Savior. And then Moses speaks prophetically in Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen. And here's what he says. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. And it is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb in the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see the great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And listen, church, I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he speaks in my name, I myself will require it of him. Thousands of years before Jesus, Moses says, man, God's going to raise up a prophet that's so much better than me. And the Lord's going to give him the words of eternal life. And if you'll listen to him, if you'll be obedient, if you'll follow what he says, it will be well with your soul. You will be blessed. But if you don't listen to the words that he speaks I will require your soul of you. And so all of a sudden we know that there's this greater prophet, this greater deliverer coming. And then lastly, we have David, King David. Man, the people wanted for themselves a king. And we know that David ended up being a man after God's own heart. Like he was a a pretty good king. He did well, but he still fell and he fell short. And his kingdom is gone and that kingdom doesn't reign anymore. But in 2 Samuel 7, Nathan speaks to David about this coming king. And I want you to think about this for a second. Most scholars are like, man, this is where we get all of who Jesus was in the Old Testament. It's just laid out for us. And so I want us to look at this just for a second. 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 17. Here's what it begins with. This is Nathan speaking to King David. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod speaking of Israel, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. 
Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. I've put up the seven messianic teachings that we get from this that are important. Like, they're looking for a Messiah. They're looking for the serpent crusher. They're looking for the seed that would bless the nations. And thousands of years before Jesus shows up, they give us what he's going to be. And here they are, these seven teachings. One, we see that he's going to be the son of David from his seed, his lineage. One who would rise from the dead in verse 12. He would be the builder of the house of God, the church. He would, pos- he would possess an eternal throne possess an eternal kingdom. He would be the son of God, which proves the immaculate conception that God would be his father. And man, we could go into the Psalms and the prophets and we could continue to see who Jesus was and what he was going to accomplish long before he ever came. But I want us now to move to Christology from below. What did it look like in the, in the New Testament? And there's just one bulk scripture we're going to look at for a moment that literally teaches us the huge rocks of Christology that we need to know and affirm. Like all those questions I asked in the beginning, if you want to know how to defend those, you want to know why they're important, you want to know how they affect you today as you sit in the seat, John 1, 1 will start us there. And so I want you to turn to John chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 18. And just quickly, we're going to begin to see all the things that matter most when we talk about the person of Christ. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, this is Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was the life and the light And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He had the words of eternal life, and those that believed and listened would find grace in life. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory as the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came from Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's right side, at the Father's side, but he has made him known. Man, there's a ton here, right? 18 verses, but I want to give you about three massively important things. This is the moment we're going to zoom in on the life of Jesus, and I hope that what it does is you go, oh my gosh, like my salvation, God's creation, his control, his sovereignty is so much bigger than I ever thought. There's so many more craters to look at. There's so many more details, and it would leave us in awe and wonder. The first is this. That Jesus was pre-existent. That he was not a created being. 
He was the holy, uncreated creator. He created all things, yet he was himself was not created. Listen, this has made its way into different denominations and different religions. Mormon and Jehovah Witness would both tell you that Jesus was a created being. That God created Jesus, which then strips him of his power, of his deity. It means that he's not on the same level as the Father. And so what you have in the Mormon faith and Jehovah Witness faith is they would say, hey, Jesus was not deity. Man, they come to my door all the time. We have these conversations, and you look at them, and they begin to describe how they believe. And and their Bible looks similar to ours. And they begin to teach you these things. You go, man, that, that sounds a lot like what I hear in my own church But you know what their Bible begins with? It says this, in the beginning was the word, Jesus, and the word was a little g God, a created being, not deity, not God in the flesh. And if we don't have that, it strips away our salvation. And so what we have is a false religion. And so we continue on, and I don't know, we're a Trinitarian people. So we believe that you have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Somehow they're all the same, they're all one, but yet they're three separate things. But what's making its way into some churches that you'd go, man, that's probably a Christian church, is called Unitarianism. And what they would say is, look, there's no way that God can be three. He's just one singular God. And so again, they would deny that Jesus was preexistent. Like this is making its way into churches you would drive through in Waco and maybe go, I think they'd probably believe what we believe. But they've taken away the divinity, and the the pre-existence of Christ. He's no longer the creator, the sustainer of all things. This is important that when we look and we see the word was God, he was in the beginning. Look, Jesus himself in John 8, 56 through 58, he's talking to the people about Abraham. They're going, man, how do you even know anything about Abraham? You're talking like you know Abraham. And listen what Jesus said of himself. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad So the Jew said to him, you are not 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, he doesn't say I was, he says I am. There wasn't a day where he was and was not, I am, I've always been. Jesus speaks this of himself. Like how does that matter to us? What what does that matter for you and I as we walk out of this place today? Man, it's this reminder that Jesus created everything. He created you, he created the world. All that is is in our sight is under his sovereign rule and reign. And the Bible says that he holds everything up with his righteous right hand. Look, those moments where you feel desperately out of control and fear and worry and uncertainty creep in. He's going, you can trust me because I created all things. I uphold all things. Man, his preexistence matters. The next thing that's a big deal in this scripture is that Jesus was fully God. He was 100% God. This is what we call the incarnation. God the Son put on human nature and became a man. Massively important. Listen to John 14, 8 through 11. Jesus speaking and he says this. I, I love this. Like the disciples are like, look man, if you could show us the Father, like if we could just see God, it'd make all this really easy to follow you. And listen how Jesus responds. John 14, 8 through 11. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said, I've been with you so long, and still you don't know me, Philip. Wherever, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? 
The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Listen, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Jesus clothed in human nature like you and I, but yet he is still fully God, fully deity. He is the second person of the Trinity. And I love Colossians 1.15. It says that he is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact imprint in nature and representation of God. I mean, think about this for a moment, guys. I think sometimes we find ourselves like these disciples and we're going, man, if I could just see God, if I could just see the Father, man, following Jesus would seem easy. Like I read the Old Testament and he just seems kind of angry in the Old Testament. Then you got Jesus and I, I like hanging out with him because he seemed pretty nice and graceful. And we're going, who is the Father? And Jesus says, you, you want to see the Father? Then look to me because we're the same. I'm in the exact nature, the exact imprint of who he is. Man, is God wrathful towards sin? Does he hate sin? Yes. Is he going to destroy all things and all sin? Yes. And he's going to make right everything that was undone. But he's also the same God that we see sent his son in his grace and mercy and kindness and compassion and love. This is the Father. And so we look to Jesus and we see this. And the fact that Jesus was 100% God matters. And then we see also that he put on human flesh in verse 14. That he's 100% man. Look, I was a math teacher for a while. I get that 100% God and 100% man doesn't really add up. But man, God is able to do whatever he wants to do. And it's important that we know that Jesus, the, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, came in the form of Jesus who was fully human like you and I. And it begins with his virgin birth. Look, this is important. The fact that Jesus was born of a virgin actually matters to your salvation. And here's what it says, right? In Matthew 1, 18 through 22, this is the Christmas story. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she, found, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. She's engaged to Joseph, ends up she's pregnant. And her husband Joseph, being a man, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, the, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And somehow the spirit of God conceived inside of the womb of a, a human being, Mary, the, the baby Jesus, the flesh of Jesus, met humanity and divinity and he was born. And he, he hungered and he thirsted and he bled and he died and he weeped and he cried. Why? Because he was fully human like us. And this is huge. Hebrews 4 says, we don't have a high priest that can't sympathize with you and I, but one that understands all things, that he was tempted as you and I, yet without sin. How huge is this? That every part of your life, every avenue that you walk through and you come to the Lord, he says, come to me because I understand what it means to be human. I understand what it means to be tempted. I understand what it means to experience loss. I understand what it means to, to feel human emotions. And yet... He walks through life navigating those perfectly on our behalf. 
And so he says, come to me. You can trust me with your life. I understand where you've been. And here's what the big theological term is for all of this. You ready? You're going to love this. It's just a good party conversation. Hypostatic union is the big theological term. And if you want the big theological definition, it's union in one hypostasis. And you're going, I don't even care or know about that. Here's what that means. Hypostatic union is the combination of the divine and human natures in the single person of Christ. There was literally councils that met and people that were ex, uh, excommunicated from the church because they got in this place where they went, man, Jesus can't be fully man because matter is evil. And there was others saying, man, he, if he's fully man, he can't be fully God. And so the church hundreds of years ago gathers together and has this council and they go, man, we're going to stand on this hypostatic union that somehow Christ was 100% God and 100% man. Why does this matter, Right? The Heidelberg Catechism was a reformed catechism that came out and it answers these questions for us. I'm going to have them up here for us. Why does it matter that he's 100% man and 100% God to you and to me? The first question they answer, why must he be a true and righteous man? He must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner, he cannot pay for others. Why does it matter that Jesus was 100% human? Because if he's going to pay for the sins of humanity, he had to have been tempted and struggled like you and I. But he has to be righteous. He had to overcome that and be perfect in our stead or he can't be the sacrifice. If Jesus was not human, he doesn't pay for our sin. And then it continues on. Why must he also be true God? So that by the power of his divinity, he might bear the weight of God's anger and his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Man, he had to be fully God. One, to walk in perfection, but two, that he would absorb the wrath and the anger and the destruction that is afforded by God towards sin. Like he took that on. He took your destruction, your wrath, your payment, my destruction, my wrath, my payment on himself as full deity and he was able to raise up from the dead after he paid that penalty. Without 100% man, without 100% God, you are not a Christian. You are not forgiven. It had to be so. This is when we look at the moon and we go, man, there's such intricacies to how God brought Jesus this is more than some good story that this God came from heaven and died. No, there was all these things that God had set up for thousands of years that had to be required of Christ, and he did all of them. It's huge. It's all inspiring. And here's what we see, that God gave his best to redeem his people. God gave his absolute best. Hebrews teaches us this. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says that Jesus is better than the angels. In chapter 7, he provides a better hope. In chapter 7, he provides a better covenant. In 8, provides a better promise. In 9, provides a better sacrifice. In 10, provides a better possession. Provides a better land. Provides a better resurrection. Provides a better blood testimony. Why does Christology matter? Because Jesus was a better Adam. Where Adam failed to obey and brought sin and death, Jesus fully obeyed and conquered sin and death. 
He was a better prophet. Where Moses came and spoke for God, Jesus came and spoke as God. He, he fulfilled what Deuteronomy said, and he brought the words of eternal life to all who would believe. And he didn't just speak as a prophet. He also led and acted as the perfect prophet and laid down his life to deliver his people once and for all. He's a better priest where the priest would come in and they would sacrifice sins for themselves and then for the people and would atone yearly for the outside covering of sin and they could be the only ones that go into the holy of holy. He comes and he doesn't just sacrifice for himself. No, he is the perfect sacrifice and he lays his life down so that you and I can now go and have communion like in the garden with the king of kings and the lord of lords. He's a better king. Where all other kings faded, all other kingdoms faded and failed, Jesus rules and reigns for all eternity. He has defeated the enemy. He crushed the serpent of sin and death, and his subjects and his people will live forever with him. And now he calls you and I to be his prophets to go and proclaim who Christ is in this gospel message. He calls us to be his priests, to make intercession for our city and our community, to point them to Christ. He makes us ambassadors of the king to represent him and to live our lives so the people may know our God and king. Man, why does Christology matter? Because Jesus is bigger than any of us could ever imagine. His act of salvation for his people is grander than our hearts and our minds can contain. The pre-existent creator did the unthinkable, left his throne and did the impossible, was born of a virgin, wrapped himself in human flesh, yet was still fully God. He lived like you and I, yet without sin. He was blameless, holy, perfect, and bled on a cross. Died, his human body was buried, yet divinity raised him to life, defeating my sin and your sin, defeating Satan and death and pain and sorrow, and he sits as the king of kings at the right hand of the Father building his kingdom, the church, until he comes again and makes all things that were broken in the garden right. And he will dwell, you and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. Amen. This is why Christology matters. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can come for a moment and we can zoom in on you, Christ. And God, this 35 minutes doesn't even begin to paint the picture of who you are and what you accomplished. But we're thankful, God. We're thankful that you've given us the divine revelation to know who you were going to be, Christ, what you were going to do. And then we're able to see your life played out in the New Testament. And we see you doing the unthinkable, leaving your throne in humility to come and to die for us to give us hope, to give us salvation, to restore the relationship that was broken in the garden. And God, I thank you that this was your plan from day one, that you didn't just leave us to our sin, you didn't abandon us as we abandoned you, but you chased after us and redeemed us through the blood of Christ. And so God, I pray that as we spend a little time this morning reflecting on this, as maybe we've looked at the person and the work of Jesus in a little bit closer way or in different way God would it well up in us obedience and faith and trust would it well up in us an appreciation for who you are Christ and what you did that maybe we haven't felt in a while man our theology matters God because you've given it to us to study and to know and so I pray you continue to grow us up in our knowledge and wisdom of you not for knowledge's sake but to know you deeper and so would you move in this time how you see fit? 
And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.